I had mentioned that I was going to do Moses, and I'll regret, but I'm not going to do Moses. Uh, I wanted, as I was looking through the various things that I wanted to cover through the course here, to look at some saints, medieval saints, and how they approach their death and what we can learn from that. And so instead of doing Moses, I sort of let Abraham stand for sort of the biblical model. And today I'm going to look at the medieval models. And then next Sunday I'm going to look at some fictional models. And then the final Sunday I'm going to look at some contemporary people and how they have written about their encroaching death and how they responded and handled it. Uh, but before I go any further, let's bow and have a prayer. <coughs> Our gracious Father, to whom we give our life, our soul, our minds, we ask that you come near to us and convict us so that we might be worthy witnesses of thee, especially as we consider this issue of the art of our own dying. I pray your blessings upon us and upon this church. In thy name, amen. <clears throat> okay, the art of dying, and I do mean the word art, that is, an art is not just following a certain set of steps. Like, remember, if you remember in elementary school or whatever, you painted by number. Did you ever do that? But you're not really an artist if you do the Mona Lisa by number. <laughs> I mean, you're not really an artist. You're just following steps. An art is an interpretation. It's a judgment that we make about how to make the most out of a particular experience. To be artistic about something is to be creative in your imagination in order to rightly experience something, to rightly express an idea or a feeling, an experience. And so, and I think as we approach death, there's not a mechanical way to do that. There's not ten steps that if you just do this, it's all going to work out and you'll, you'll have a great end. But rather, it's, a, it's an act of one's imagination. It's a judgment based upon some profound commitments and previous experiences that a person has had that enables one to approach this experience in life with some sense of um, meaning, uh, some sense of purpose to it. And that's what I'm trying to do is look at various models of how people have approached their own mortality and what we can learn from that. Okay, just as a, a, a review, this is sort of the theme this is, as you know, St. Jerome, as he's translating the Vulgate into Latin, and he has a skull there. And that's a, a call, a reminder of his own mortality, that he has a limited amount of days, and he needs to do that. He needs to measure his days. And, uh, excuse me as I skip through a bunch of stuff here. I want to... I think these are the three main themes at least from scripture, on how to properly, artistically approach one's death. And that is, there is a time to be born and a time to die. We know this. Also, we can learn wisdom in doing this. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. There is a wisdom in learning about our mortality and being able to cultivate an imaginative, creative judgment about who we are what we believe in, what we've done as we approach our own death. And so there's wisdom to that. And then finally, in Romans 14, this great claim that Paul makes, that whether we live to ourselves or whether we die to ourselves, we are the Lord's. That from our faith perspective, we know that just as we are in the Lord alive, we will be in the Lord in our death. That death is not the end of everything, even though it may be the end of my mind and my heart and my lungs and my functioning. But it's not the end of my relationship with God. 
And this is the great promise that the Christian faith has for everybody, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And as Paul goes down that list of things that might possibly separate a person, the very first thing that he mentions is death can't even separate us from the love of God. In light of that, bear with me for a little bit, I want to look at a couple of saints today, medieval saints. The first one is Saint Anselm of Canterbury, and then the second one is Saint Francis of Assisi. Anyone been to Canterbury Cathedral? All right. Uh, You walked right by the shrine of Saint Anselm. As you walk through the nave up to the Trinity Chapel where the shrine of Thomas of Becket was, Right on the right, as you pass through there, there's a little chapel there, and there's a building. I'm in a shrine there, and I'll show you a picture of that in just a minute. And it's to St. Anselm. St. Anselm was a remarkable person. He was born in 1033 in Italy, and he died April the 21st, 1109, in Canterbury as the Archbishop of Canterbury. But uh, he was not really uh, an, a, oh, an ecclesiastical leader by heart. He first and foremost was a contemplative and he was a scholar. Some of the most significant things, I think, written from the medieval period, theologically and philosophically, were written by Anselm. He was a student of a very famous philosopher during that time named Lanfranc, and from him he learned logic, he learned classical Greek philosophy, he learned scripture, and his mind was so analytical he was able to sort of assimilate so much of what he learned into very novel, creative works that we still study today. In fact, if, 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 if I had a choice, if I were at a large department where I could teach and I could specialize in several things, his philosophy would be one of the things I would love to specialize in. He wrote a lot. He's had a tremendous influence. Of course, he, he, he doesn't have an answer for everything, and he's not completely right about everything that he said. But what he did, though, was very insightful, very passionate, and always born out of a deep, deep commitment in his own heart. He, first and foremost, was a monk who loved scholarship. He was at a monastery in Beck in France, and the bishopric at Canterbury was open, and somehow or another, William I, uh, this is not William the Conqueror, this William, not William II, I'm sorry, William II, who was called William the Red, if you know much about your English history, or William Rufus, he some way or another got wind about uh, uh, Anselm's reputation and his influence, and so he sort of twisted Anselm's arm to come into England, and while he was there, he sort of forced him against really his better intentions, that is Anselm, to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. However, though, things didn't work out really well. Uh, As is the wont of most kings, they want to be king over everything, even the church. And William II wanted to be able to appoint bishops for the church there throughout all of, uh, all of England. And being the Archbishop of Canterbury, if you know much about the history of England, there was always a rivalry between the, the Bishop of York, you have been to York Minster in northern England, it's a beautiful place, magnificent building, and the uh, bishopric down in Canterbury, there's always a rivalry, even to this day, the Bishop at York is called the Archbishop of York even though the Archbishop of Canterbury is considered to be the superior of the two bishops. Well, be that as it may, uh, 
William the Red wanted to be able to point all the bishops, and Anselm insisted that, no, you cannot do that. This is left up to spiritual deciders. This is left up to people who are church people, not of the, of the king's court. And so that started a tremendous controversy called the investiture controversy. And it got so intense between William II and Anselm that he exiled Anselm. And he fled uh, to, hold on, to Lyons, which is in southern France. And there he stayed for a while. And eventually, uh, uh, William II realized that uh, he had to make peace with his very famous and influential archbishop. And so Anselm was able to come back. And eventually William died. And Henry I became king. And guess what Henry I wanted to do? what all kings want to do, and that is to be a king over everything. And so he decided that he was going to now appoint bishops for all the churches in England. And Anselm stood up and said, no, you can't do that. This is left up to the Pope, the spiritual head of the church. It's not left up to the secular head of the church. And so, guess what? Henry also exiled Anselm for the second time. Well, eventually, and he goes back to his old monastery, by the way, Beck, the monastery Beck, and he stays there. And eventually, in 1106, he returns back to the Archbishop of Canterbury. And uh, in the last six years of his life, it's a very productive period of his life, he writes some very significant things. In just a minute, I'll go back. I'm going to talk some about what he wrote and some of his positions that he took in some very controversial issues during those days. Uh, but uh, he got really ill the last year or so of his life, and uh, he got so weak he, he couldn't eat, had a hard time drinking, uh, but he insisted on in going to Mass every day. They had to carry him into Mass, and eventually he dies, and they enshrine him, and they put him there in the Cathedral of Canterbury. Now, the ruins, I mean, the, the bones, the leftovers of Anselm, Nobody knows where they are because during the Reformation of, in Great Britain in the 16th century, they came and got the, 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 the remains of Anselm and I don't know what they did with them. Nobody knows what they did with them. But nonetheless, there is still the shrine dedicated to Anselm there in Canterbury. Well, let me say a few things, though, about him that's going to put his personhood in, in perspective of us and hence we can maybe see as he was approaching his death, how did he do it? What was the art? What was the imaginative, creative judgments that he was using to come to grips with his own mortality? <clears throat> when he was a monk in, uh, at the monastery at Beck, before he becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury, he had been told by or commissioned by the abbot of Beck at that time, and he was encouraged by many of his fellow monks to write a book to demonstrate God's existence without appealing to any biblical or ecclesiastical authority at all. That is, can you write some treatise that would give us confidence that God does exist and not have to appeal to our own scriptures, our own leaders to do so? And part of that was that the church was being challenged by Islam as it was growing into the West and saying that the Christian notion of God was wrong and that your scriptures are wrong. And so they, there was a movement to how can you defend our belief in God without necessarily appealing to the authorities of Scripture. Now, of course, he was a man of Scripture, deeply, deeply committed 
to the authority of scriptures. And, but he was also a philosopher trained in logic, very, very studious in the history of philosophy, especially Aristotle, very much was familiar with St. Augustine's writings. And so he set out to do that. And he writes a very influential book called Monologion. That means one word, Monologion. It, it's a very brilliant book, but he was dissatisfied with it. A lot of his contemporaries liked it, but he was very dissatisfied with it, and he felt like it didn't make his case. And so one day in, at, at Mass, as he was taking the Eucharist, it came to him like a flash as he was celebrating the communion with the Lord, how to properly come up with an argument for God's existence. And he wrote it down in a book called Pros. Logion, word two, P-R-O-S-L-O-G-I-O-N, proslogion. It is still studied, debated, quarreled over today. Uh, I have to admit, I've been very, very interested in this argument for years, the very first time I ever heard it. I'll give you a condensed form of it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a long book that is proslogion, but most people are interested in the first three chapters of it. He reasons this way, that if you were to ask an atheist, what does an atheist think about the name God? which an atheist thinks does not exist, what would the atheist define God to be? And what Anselm argued is that everybody thinks, when they think of God, whether you think God exists or not, that God is that which nothing greater can be conceived. Right. Not the greatest concept. Like you may think of the greatest concept of a building or a tree or even a globe or a solar system. But God is even greater than any of those things. So God is that which nothing greater can be conceived. Even an atheist, when an atheist says such a thing doesn't exist, will agree with that name of God. Well, what Anselm did, through very subtle reasoning and sort of complicated logic, comes to the conclusion that if anybody understands the name of God, they must believe that God exists. Because if, now I'm going to lose you on this, I know it's Sunday morning, we're not supposed to really work on with our minds that much, but... God, if God is that which nothing greater can be conceived, and you think that God does not exist, then you are not thinking of that which nothing greater can be conceived because, now hold on, it's greater for that which you think to exist in reality and in the mind than just in the mind alone. I told you it wouldn't be very clear. <laughs> Uh, but it's a subtle argument, and I have to admit I've been sort of interested in this, and I've read a lot about it, written a lot about it, talked a lot about it. But it shows Anselm, though, using his brilliant, profound, analytical mind to serve the cause of his heart, what he had felt there at the Eucharist. He has this experience with God, and he tries to get his mind to understand fully what he had experienced with God all of his life, reading the scriptures, through the church calendar, praying, meditating, pastorally relating to people in his own sort of deep con contemplation, he tries to come to understand that which he has experienced. And he comes up with a famous phrase. In Latin, it's called fides, quon, intellectum. In English, that means faith, seeking, understanding. Faith, that is our experience with God. What he experienced there in the Mass what we know in the great hymns and the great worship services and our own quiet moments with God, it seeks understanding. We need to understand that which we've experienced with God. And this starts a long process of serious philosophical, theological output by Anselm. 
I had mentioned to you that William the Red had expelled him out, banished him out of England, and he was in Lyon, and while he was there in banishment, he wrote a book. I'll give you the Latin title of that book too. Not to impress you, but it's the one that most everybody uses when they talk about this book. It's called Cur Deus Homo. Let me see if I have any. Well, I was going to give you some money if you could guess what that means. Cur means why, deus God, homo man. Why the God man? People still read it today. They still argue about it, debate it. Now, of course, it's not the only way in which we can think about why Christ became incarnate. There are many different ways. And there are many different ways in which we can think about how we are redeemed by Christ's death and resurrection. But this was a very serious, very clearly written, very compelling argument that why God became man was to redeem us. That's why he became man. Uh, just as I did with the prologion argument, I'll give you a really sort of a thumbnail uh, version of that argument. He reasons this way, <clears throat> that the, the, the offense of something is determined by who is offended, not the offender. Think about that. If, let's say, I, I offend you, that's bad enough, right? And I've done something wrong, and I need to apologize. But let's say I go up to Washington, D.C., and I hit the president. What would happen? It would be a little more serious, wouldn't it? Because the president has a lot more position and authority and importance than you. No, no offense intended. And so the crime is the extent of the crime is determined by who is offended, not who is the offender. In our sins, we have offended a holy, eternal, righteous God, which means then the offense is eternal. I have done a crime, I as a finite being, that I cannot pay for. Why? Because the offense is eternal. I am guilty, I should pay for it, but I cannot pay for my own guilt. So in such a situation like this, our sin, as Anselm reasoned, has put God in such a position that we are irreconcilable with God because we're the guilty ones. It doesn't make any sense for an innocent person to pay for the sins of the guilty. So what does God do? God, who's the only one who can pay for the offense because God is eternal, and we, who should pay for it, but cannot because we are temporal, God becomes man in Jesus Christ, bears the state of the guilt, and grants the power of God to overcome that guilt. So why did Christ become man? So that we might be redeemed to God. Now, of course, a lot of people don't buy that argument. I, I think there's something kind of compelling about it though I do admit there are other ways to think about our redemption with Christ. But he did that while he was in exile. He wasn't wasting his time, in other words. He wasn't. All right, when he finally comes back to England, to Canterbury, it is a tumultuous time. Henry uh, I is not really an amicable kind of ruler, and there's tremendous tension between Henry and Anselm, and also the bishop up at York, a lot of rivalry, jealousy there, but all through that period, what Anselm wanted most of all was to be able to do his prayers, go to communion, think and write and talk about these profound ideas as his faith was seeking understanding. 
This defined his life. It gave him deep soul, a deep mind, a deep spiritual effectiveness with other people. And he was very, very sort of contagious with this. People were attracted to him because he had a focus in his life, had a profound focus in his life. Here's a famous statue, and I think this statue of Anselm is at St. Anselm College, which is in New Hampshire, a very famous liberal arts college. But hold on one second. There's the shrine of St. Anselm there in Canterbury. And as I've mentioned, he was um, in his mid-70s, the last six months of his life, he was in tremendous pain. He had lost his appetite. He couldn't eat, couldn't hold down food. And he was basically withering away. But he kept his focus. And just days before he died, he was asked if he had any regrets in his life. And this is what he said. He said, I wish I was strong enough to write another book about the nature of the soul. That sort of struck me. Here he was, a dying man, wanting to do what he had done all his life. Here he was at the last of his life, so weak he couldn't even lift himself up. At his deathbed, as, as the, his compatriots and colleagues and other priests came, he was just barely able to lift his hand and do the sign of the cross with him. But really what he wanted to do was to understand more what he had experienced in his faith. Here at the very end, what he had done so well, so productively, and so enriching in his own life is what he wanted to continue to do. It gave him his meaning there as he felt like his life was becoming, he wrote it away, diminished right in front of him. Faith seeking understanding. And I wish he had been able to write that book. Like I said, I've learned from everything that I've read about Thomas Aquinas, I mean from St. Anselm. And I think I, and many others would have deeply been enriched if he had indeed written that book. But here's his point. Here's my point about him. Anselm's art of dying is expressed here so well in that great phrase that he came up with, faith seeking understanding. His purpose, his goal, his mind, that which motivated him, that which gave him energy all his life, he kept with. He never gave up on it, even to the very end. And so I think one of the things we can learn from him is this continuation of a lifelong calling is an art to dying. See, I read a book a number of years ago. It's, I have to admit, it was one of the most interesting books I've ever read by a guy named Gonzalez called Deep Survival. Deep Survival. He went around and studied and interviewed people who had survived uh, crashes in the wilderness, uh, being shipwrecked in the sea, uh, trapped up on mountains. These people who had to survive because they were left without any civilization or any strength, anything to rely upon. And it was, he had, oh, I forget how many, seven or eight cases they were really, really interesting, but horrifying. They really were what these people went through. And not all of them survived, by the way. They didn't. And you've heard these stories. You've seen movies about this. People crash out in the Alaskan wilderness. You know, how do they make it? Well, he came up with some interesting conclusions to uh, what, what, were, what characteristics did the survivors have that the non-survivors didn't have. 
Now, of course, a lot of it is just fortune. I mean, if you're working hard, you know the right thing, and the grizzly bear comes and gets you, there's just not much you can do about that. But those people who did survive had a number of things in common, and one of them is they never gave up on what they did well. They never gave up on what they did well. Even though they were scared, even though they thought they could die, they were relentless, they were persistent in what they could do well. And they came up with a plan on how to use that. And many of them did. They got out of the wilderness. They had to do something. The people who didn't survive, though, those people who gave up. Like, I can't do anything. It's over. And it usually was once they gave up. Well, I think that kind of idea can be applied in many contexts. But I think it obviously can be applied here as we look at Anselm. You know, we, I've, I've hit the highlights of him. Uh, you know, here's a man, died in 1109. We're still reading his stuff. We're still talking about him. It's amazing. But he had a dark side to his soul as well. Uh, in fact, I've... And I didn't know this, by the way. I've been reading all this stuff about him. I've even read some biographies about him. But I ran across this book a number of years ago. It's called Meditations and Prayers by Anselm of Canterbury. They're anything but what I thought he would write. Now, I've read some of his other prayers in some of his books, like Proslogion, Curtis Homo. There are some prayers in there. But these prayers are excruciating and agonizing about his own sense of failure and inefficiency and deficiency. I, I've got time. Well, I know I don't have time. Just trust me. <clears throat> uh, so he struggled with himself in all this. All these great things that he had accomplished and the reputation that he had established. The hard, hard work and the persistence, the, 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 the constancy that he showed all the time. Nonetheless, inside of him was this sense of inadequacy. The sense that I'm not really doing what I should be doing and it is expressed very honestly very very poignantly in these prayers and meditations but you know here at the last of his hours he's so weak he cannot even lift his hand what endures him does he give in to his despair or does he continue to do what he has done so well all of his life I think it's the latter not the former and each of us has well each of us could write a book like this in our own way each of us have an, has enough agony or loss or doubt or despair, frustrations in our life that we could begin to see, well, maybe that's been the real theme of my life. And I've known people this, like this, that at the end, all they can think about is what's gone wrong in their life, what they have failed at. And, and we can all do that, that's for sure. But just like those survivors, though, they continue to do what they had done well. And Anselm, I think, continued to do what he had done well, faith-seeking understanding. Or another person. <clears throat> Francis of Assisi. Now, I've not been to Italy, frankly. I've never, I don't think I've been to Italy. I take it back. I went to a little town up in the Alps. <clears throat> uh, but I've not been to Rome or any of the other great cities like Florence, and I haven't been to Assisi. Any of you? Any of you been to Assisi? Okay, well, great. Did I guess you went and saw uh, the, where he's buried? Okay, well, great. Yeah. I got a picture of it as well. Maybe you can make a comment about that. But Francis was born in 1181 to a wealthy cloth merchant there in Assisi. He himself was sort of a what? A 
cat about town, a man about town, a troubadour, rather frivolous with his life. And he joined the army there at Assisi that was fighting a neighboring city there. And uh, he, in battle, he was captured. And during that time, he had a traumatic experience. And when he came back, it started a pretty profound transition, transformation in his life, away from the life that he had known of privilege and sort of pomp and vanity. And he reached a point where uh, he had completely rejected all that. And one day, he was wandering around out in the field near a church called San Damanino. San Damanino. And it was an abandoned church just a set of ruins there. And as he goes in there on the altar place, he sees a fire lit and he hears a voice and he says it's from Christ and Christ tells him to go and rebuild my church. Now he takes that literally and figuratively. Literally, he starts rebuilding that church stone by stone. It's remarkable what he was able to do. Other people boys his age who grew up just like him saw what he was done and were extremely attracted to his kind of spirituality and his focus. And others started to rebuild it as well. Well, there's this very dramatic scene. Oh, by the way, any of you ever seen the, the 1970s, uh, 1971 or 1972 movie called Brother, Son, Sister, Moon? It's about the life of St. Francis. It's a musical as well as a, a narrative. It, it, it's really a little sentimental and dated, but it's, it's a profound movie about St. Francis. Well, as he goes back to into town in Assisi. He starts giving away his father's clothing and wealth to the poor people there. And that just incenses his father, who beats him up, by the way. And he wants him tried for theft. And he brings him to the bishop. And Francis, to show his total renunciation of any kind of material entrappings and attachments, he just derobes himself right there in front of everybody, turns around and walks off, never to come back like that again. And he becomes a mendicant, sworn to poverty and chastity. He begins this order. They go around. They're building old abandoned churches. But also, he, he, he's an incredible person. He, he, he knew no stranger. He knew no adversary. He, they, start, they started hospices. They would bring in lepers, people stricken with the plague and other outcast people. He would give his clothing, which was basically just rags, to poor people, whatever food they'd have, he'd give to others. He, he would hug and kiss leper people. He was just undaunted, unafraid of anything. He knew no limits, in a sense. Eventually, Pope Innocent III recognizes the significance of this order and grants it sort of status as a religious order. And I'll say this, just as the voice told Francis to rebuild my church, he took it literally, but he also took it figuratively. By the end of his life, the poor people had come back to the church. There in the 12th century, there was such a division between the aristocrat power holders and the church and the poor people. The poor people had abandoned the church because the church had just become synonymous with the dominating, powerful, wealthy people. But by the end of his life in 1226, the poor people had come back into the church. And he had rebuilt the church. It was phenomenal what he did. He was, it, it caused, it's one of the great revivals in the history of Christendom. Europe became Christian again because of this incredibly infectious spiritual movement that Francis started. 
And part of what motivated that is that he knew no adversaries. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. <clears throat> you see, he is the patron saint of animals. There he is with the picture. This is also a famous painting. You see the wolf there? That's the wolf of Gubbio. This is recorded in several biographies. Now, I have to say that when we think, when we read about Francis, we've got to read all these biographies with somewhat of a critical eye because they really did embellish a lot of stories. I, I do think there's a kernel of truth in all of it, but by, after about three or four generations, he was, he was next to Christ and what he was, was able to do. But I kind of like this story. I don't take it literally, but I do think there's some substance to this story. Anyway, he's passing through the town of Gubbio, and, and the people are just terrified. He said, How, didn't you see the wolf? He said, oh, I didn't see any wolf. He said, there's been a wolf out there marauding us and killing us, killing our animals, killing our children. And so Francis turned back out into the forest, and as he was walking, the wolf charged up to him, and Francis said, halt. And the wolf stopped, and he said, why are, you, why are you attacking this village? And the wolf said, well, years ago they killed my pups. And so Francis said, come with me. And so he walks into the village with this giant wolf, and everybody is terrified about it. And so he gets everybody to stand right there, the wolf standing with him, and he gets them to talk the problem out. <laughs> There's another painting in which he is, he's shaking the hands with the wolf of Gubbio. This natural adversary, because of his, his infectious love, he overcame. He didn't see a division between us and animals. He didn't see a division between him and anything. In fact, you, you've heard the great canticles of, of St. Francis, brother, son, sister, moon, uh, all creatures bright and good. What is it? Yeah. Well, that's inspired by St. Francis. Uh, in this great canticle that he writes, he talks about how animals are his brothers, water is his sister, the moon's his sister, the sun's his brother, and death is his sister. At the end there, when he's dying, he gets all the other friars there with him to sing this hymn about sister death. Well, uh, interestingly enough, <clears throat> uh, Anselm, I'm excuse me, uh, Francis accompanied the Fifth Crusade into Egypt. He went with the Crusaders there. But instead of, instead of fighting and wanting to uh, convert the Muslims by force, he wanted to convert the Sultan there by the truth of the Gospel. And so as they were camped out one day before the battle, he and another man made their way into the, the Sultan's camp. His name was Malik, means king. Akamel, A-L, capital K-A-M-I-L, Akamel, who was the leader of the Muslim army there uh, and was the nephew of the great, great Muslim fighter Saladin from Damascus. Well, anyway, uh, he's immediately arrested and he's taken to the Sultan and said, you know, what are you, an invader? And he said, no, no, I've come here to preach the gospel to you. And he says, well, we don't want to hear this. And, 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 and Francis said, okay, here's what I'll do. I will step into a fire if you to show you the truth of what I believe if you can get your clerics your Muslim leaders to step in the fire with me to show the truth of what they believe and so he sent word out and nobody would do it he that is the Sultan was so inspired by, by Francis's compassion that he wrote this kind of a, a document that said if Francis were ever arrested by Muslim armies, 
this would free him from imprisonment that the Sultan was so inspired and there was sort of a and it's fictional I know it's fictional because others have disconfirmed this but a legend that the Sultan was so inspired by Francis's love and compassion that um, he became a Christian at that point but I will say this though when Francis went back to Assisi and other places uh, he put prayer towers all around his churches he had been inspired by the Muslims five times every day, you know, sort of discipline of prayer. And so he sort of learned from that and brought it back. Here he was facing an enemy. There was a war going on between the Muslims and Europe, between Christians and Muslims. <coughs> but he didn't see it that way. He didn't see the Sultan as an enemy. He saw the Sultan as, in a sense, a brother that needs to see the truth. And he was willing to die to, to show the truth rather than to kill to show the truth. Well, uh, <clears throat> he had this, like I said, remarkable ability uh, not to see any boundaries, not to see any oppos opposition, no adversaries, whether they were sick, whether they were of nature, or whether they were enemies. He didn't see anyone like that. And so uh, Francis uh, had this powerful attraction to people because they knew if they came to him, he would totally accept them for what they were. Sinners, sick, enemy. He knew, they knew that he had this deeper drive in his life to become one, to be united, to show God's compassion to everyone. <clears throat> okay, and this is the um, painting of his meeting here with the Sultan, uh, Al-Kamal. In 1224, a very interesting event happened to Thomas. I mean, Frank, uh, yeah, Tom, uh, St. Francis. Uh, I, I can do this in three or four minutes and be out here. He is in a fast, a 40-day fast, and he goes to Mount Laverna. And he feels like he needs to do more to show the love of God to the world, but he doesn't know quite yet. There was some friction in his order. There was some conflict between other orders, with other orders, and so he is trying to discern what God wants him to do, and he prays. And in this prayer, the image of Christ comes to him and uh, shows Francis the scars of the cross on the feet, on the side. That's called the stigmata, which is Latin for mark. When Francis comes to from that vision, he has the marks on him. This is called Francis's stigmata. He, he was befuddled by it. He tried to hide it. Uh, just a few people during his life knew about it. Now, how much of that was actual, I'm not for sure, but I do think there's something going on, something affected him, something changed him through that intense spiritual experience that he had with Christ there at, at Mount Laverna. And uh, when he dies, it is finally uh, revealed that he is bearing the marks of the cross. Well, he gets sick. Probably, and I've read this before, that he has leprosy because he has been hugging and living and working with lepers. He finally caught one of these diseases and he's, 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 he's in pain. Uh, he is suffering. He's weak. He can't even get out of the bed. But there he is in his room and he's dying. Uh, and what he wants to do, he had had some conflict, and I can't remember who it was, with a fellow 
Franciscan friar at that point, and he asked for that friar to come in, and he asked this friar for forgiveness for the cause of that conflict. Even on his deathbed, he was trying to be reconciled with people. He wasn't asking who's right or wrong. What he wanted was reconciliation. And the last thing that he says is that he reads from Psalm 142, and they sing that hymn to Sister Death. Let me read just the first couple of verses of Psalm 142. With my voice I cry to the Lord, with my voice I make supplication to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit is faint, you know my way. And Francis obviously knew the way of God in his life. And there's the famous shrine. You remember that? Does that look familiar to you there at the church, the sissy? Well, let me wrap this up then. Here are some things I think we can learn about Francis, the art of dying. First of all, uh, this quote comes from G.K. Chesterton, one of the great English writers, thinkers, theologians, man of faith of the previous century, and he wrote a little biography on St. Francis. And he said, Francis walked the earth as the pardon of God. And he did. It was remarkable. He could pardon anything. He knew no boundaries. No boundaries except the grace of God. And so when he is coming up to his ultimate boundary, that's death, even though he's suffering, he's in pain, it's no boundary to him. He was able to approach his final boundary with such confidence and conviction. Even though he knew it was his death, he wasn't denying it, because all of his life he had lived as though he was the pardon of God. He could call anything a brother and a son. He could even call his death his sister. And he welcomes it because he knew then that even in that, God's grace would be working its way through him. And so that voice that he heard back at San Don Manino, go and rebuild my church, he knew was welcoming him even into his own final boundary, and that's the boundary of his own death. And I think there's tremendous insight in that. Just like what I said earlier, the survivors, they kept doing what they knew they could do well, and they survived. If we keep doing what our faith tells us and what we've learned to do in our faith as we approach something as, as final as this, and I'm, you know, I'm not ready to die at my age. I'm not. I'm not there. Maybe one of these days I'll mature into it. But if that moment were to come to me prematurely, how would I face it? What would, I rely, what would I rely upon? What strength could I marshal up to be able to face my final boundary? If I have been running from boundaries, running from animals, running from the sick, running from the enemy, then I'm going to probably be running from my death. But if I know no boundaries, then I can even see that voice speaking through my final boundary, rebuild my church. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord. All right, I could go into more. I actually wanted to say more about Anselm. Uh, but uh, any comments or questions you want to make about this, what we learned, the art of dying from Anselm of Canterbury and Francis of Assisi? Yes? Uh, these days I hear a lot about faith alone and the 
if you want to seek further understanding of God, you're on dangerous territory. What was Anselm's answer to that? What he would say is not really about God then. Uh, because we have faith in God who is the creator, the redeemer of the world, the ground of all reality, the necessary existing thing for us even to be, it is natural for us to want to understand that. So if you're saying, I don't need any understanding, I've just got faith, Anselm says, well, you've got wrong faith. You've you got faith in something else. In fact, if you take that literally, you have faith in nothing. <laughs> if you think you don't need to understand what you have faith in, then what you have faith in is not really worth or even understandable. Ours is. I mean, the claim that God is the creator has, has meaning to it. It can obviously shape the way we think and live. Our claim that, that uh, God is the redeemer over sin, over death, the devil, and darkness, has some implications to it that we need to think through. But it's faith seeking understanding. We don't, first of all, understand God and then have faith. We love God, and then we understand why we love God. All right, I'm over a little bit. Uh, any other comment or question? All right, I'll conclude this with a prayer. Our humble Lord, enable us to be able to approach our final boundary, our final obstacle, with such a plume as Anselm and Francis had, that by our lives we not only give testimony of the strength of our souls, but also of the... And this I pray in thy name, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.